Welcome to another episode of Outliers with Daniel Scrivener, where each week I sit down with a world-class performer to deconstruct what they've mastered, digging deep to uncover the tools, tactics, and tricks that we can all use in our own lives. And today, we've got a really special show for you. My guest is Erling Kagi, who is a man of many firsts. The New York Times has described Erling as a philosophical adventurer, or perhaps an adventurous philosopher. In 1990, Erling and his expedition partner, Bjorge Olsland, became the first people to ever reach the North Pole unsupported. Over the course of 58 days, they covered nearly 500 miles on skis, pulling hundreds of pounds of supplies behind them the entire way. They even encountered and had to shoot a polar bear. In 1993, Erling became the first person to make a solo, completely unsupported expedition to the South Pole, where he covered over 800 miles in 50 days without any contact with the outside world during the entire expedition. That got him on the cover of the international edition of Time magazine. And in 1994, Erling summited Mount Everest, completing what's called the Three Pole Challenge by making it to both the North and South Poles, as well as the summit of Mount Everest. Out of those experiences, he's published multiple best-selling books, including two of my all-time favorites, Silence in the Age of Noise and Philosophy for Polar Explorers, What They Don't Teach You in School. When I first came across Silence a few years ago, I began giving it away to friends who began to give it away and recommend it to others. It's an insanely, insanely good book. It's also been recommended by the BBC and The Guardian, who named it one of the top 10 books on Silence. I think Erling is one of the most important voices of our time, and I'm so excited to have him on the show. So please enjoy my conversation with Erling Kagi. Erling, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm so excited to chat with you. Thanks for coming on Outliers. Thank you. Thank you for inviting. So I wanted to first start off by just saying thank you. And the reason I wanted to have you on is your books have had a really profound impact on me. First, Silence, and then the latest book I've really been enjoying is Philosophy for Polar Explorers. So I wanted to see if we can just start by talking a little bit about silence, which to me is just the whole concept, like when I remember finding that book, when I originally stumbled across it on Amazon, and just thinking, wow, a whole book dedicated to the idea of silence. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about what led to you writing that book and what that book means to you? Just like five years ago, I had Sunday dinner with my three daughters, and they were all teenagers, and they were all connected, all looking at the phones, which was, of course, pissing me off. And I start to see that. They didn't know what silence is. They didn't relate to silence at all. And I mentioned silence to them, and I said, silence is nothing. And nothing comes from nothing. To me, that was, I wouldn't say shocking, but a huge surprise. And I had spent so much of my life to venture into silence. I walked alone to the South Pole for 50 days and nights into this huge white nothingness with no radio, no telephone. Hardest spoke to myself, and that taught me a great lesson on the importance of silence surrounding you, but even more important, inner silence. So then I came up with three questions. What is silence? Where is silence? And why is it more important today than ever before? After two years, I came down to 33 answers. Which is quite a few answers there. And just to maybe expand on that, so silence, clearly there's the kind of audio definition of silence, which I'm sure is what most people think of, just you're not hearing anything. Your concept to me seems much more holistic than that. Silence in terms of being with yourself, being alone, being with your thoughts. Yes. 
to me, the opposite of silence is noise, not necessarily sounds, but could be sounds, but also all kinds of noise, all kinds of expectations that the telephone is going to ring. You can't look into a starry night. There's all this man-made lights. A car is passing. A radio is running. You're always interrupted because you're always available. All this is noise to me. So the silence I wanted to explore and sit down and write about is this more like this inner silence, the silence we all have within, the silence which is there waiting for us to be discovered, to be explored. And of course, this silence is about yourself. Noise is always about running away from yourself. It's always about trying to be someone else, while silence is trying to be yourself. Just comfortable with yourself or at home with yourself. (laughs) Yeah, but it could also be pretty uncomfortable because, of course, noise is always the easiest option in life because then you don't have to really take anything that serious. While silence is quite often a little bit complicated, a little bit challenging, could be a little bit uncomfortable, but it's certainly worth it. Just to talk a little bit about that third question, and I'm sure part of the answer of why silence is more important than ever has to do with just how connected we are with technology, especially kids and teenagers and anyone that's a parent definitely knows this and sees this. But can you talk a little bit about, I guess, your answer, your perspective on why it's more important than ever before? I think it always has been very important. But today, because we live in a culture where we are always supposed to be available, we always have a phone with us. Some of the quite a few thousands of the brightest people on earth, the best educated people on earth, the best paid people on earth, are working day and night to get us addicted to our phones. So because we are disturbed, interrupted, spending like three or four hours every day over phone. If you live until we're like 82, 83 years, like we do in the States and in Norway, we will spend around 13 years of our life looking onto a screen of, on a telephone. That's insane. So I just decided I really have to sit down and write a book for as many people as possible to read not because I'm going to tell anyone what they're going to do, but just tell people about my own ideas about it and how crazy it has become and about how rich life can be. Have you been surprised at how successful that book has been? Because it's a best-selling book. It's been translated into multiple different languages. I'm curious, when you published it, did you know it was going to be successful or was it success a surprise to you? Not at all. I approached three agents and to turn me down. And I think when you write a book, you should not sit there and think that this is going to be an enormous bestseller. It's, I'm going to sell so many books. I'm going to earn so much money. Because most books don't sell. So I think you need to have the opposite approach. You need to kind of feel that I have something really important to say. And in my case, I spent 18 months writing this quite thin book. I didn't actually expect anything. All I wanted to do was to write a great book. And as you said, now it's translated into 39 languages. So sometimes you're surprised in a positive way. My thinking on that is I think it resonated for a lot of people like it resonated with me, where I don't think everyone's interested in that message, but I think that a lot of people are at that point where they kind of need to hear, wanted to hear a book like that. One of the things that I wanted to talk a little bit about is your experience with silence and clearly. We're going to talk a lot about the expeditions you've been on, the exploring work you've done, but 
it seems to me that probably the most powerful experience you had with silence is the 50 days and 50 nights that you spent alone by yourself on the South Pole. And you mentioned that silence can be very uncomfortable. Can you talk a little bit about what your journey with silence and experience with silence was like through those 50 days? When you start out walking to the South Pole for the first couple of hours or couple of days, you have all this noise in your head. It's just like if you're going to sail across the ocean or climb a mountain or whatever you're going to do to begin with, or sit alone by yourself in a room doing nothing. You will have all this noise because you're thinking, and thinking is about being in the past or being into the future. And to me, that's also noise. So to begin with, I had all this noise in my head, but after a few days, I started to think less. I started to live, becoming a part of nature. I got into very good rhythm. Of course, the secret walking to the South Pole is to put one leg in front of the other enough times. But also, it's a challenge also to try to have a good time while you're doing it. And after a few weeks, I started to feel that my body didn't stop by my fingertips or didn't stop by my skin that was extended into the ice, into the snow, into the horizon. And I became a part of nature. And I started to have a dialogue with the surroundings, sending some ideas out, getting all the thoughts back again. So you very much feel that you're present in your own life, that the future doesn't matter, the past doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is actually where you are there and then. And that, again, feels very meaningful. Of course, I love life in Norway. I love to travel. I love to hang out with people. An expedition like this is not about turning you back to the world. It's more like opening up. It's seeing the earth from different perspective. And it's about loving life even more. I imagine that that was a profound experience. And you talk a little bit about that and even ending that expedition and not really knowing all that you learned. And I'm sure probably there's parts of you that's still processing that, but I'm curious. So you go and you go away, you have this experience by yourself, 50 days, 50 nights, then you come back and reintegrate into life. Were there realizations you had, or were there new practices that you started doing once you came back? Yeah, obviously a part all that we have met. The thing is you get home and after a few days, your washing machine breaks down. You need to have it repaired. And you need to earn some money to pay the guy who repairs your washing machine. So you get back to life pretty quickly. But still, all these experiences, they live with you. They never go away. For me to have walked to the South Pole, but also all the expeditions, combined with running a business today and also being a family man, really enlightened my kind of horizon or about the importance of keeping your pleasures simple to be the center in your own life, not in an egoistic way, but more like maybe more in an egocentric way that we need to listen to yourself and also to be able to be good to other people. So I want to change and go back in time a little bit and talk about all of the different expeditions you've done. And I knew a little bit of that reading about some of your books, but I learned a lot more just in preparation for this interview. You crossed, I believe, the Pacific Ocean by a boat first, then you completed the Three Pole Challenge, first by, I believe, doing the North Pole, then the South Pole, then Everest, and that was within a really compressed period of time. And you've done many other things, but can you talk a little bit about just what drew you to wanting to go and have one of these kind of all-consuming kind of expedition (laughs) explorer experiences in the first place? 
first of all, I strongly believe that we're all born explorers in the sense that when you're one year old, you learn how to walk and you walk out to the house and you start to wonder what's hidden between yourself and the horizon. And soon you will start to wonder what's hidden beyond the horizon. So this spirit of exploration, that's something we all have. And of course, I have kept it more than most people, but it never goes away. We all have it to a certain degree. So to be an explorer is not something you begin being, but something you slowly stop being. But you still have it until you die. So for me, but also because I'm born in Norway, so I'm used to be out to nature. I'm used to the cold. I'm used to the oceans. I'm used to go skiing. So I somehow kept that spirit. And I'm very much driven by curiosity and by wondering. Just I've been wondering my whole life. And I think that's one of the sad things with new technology, that we wonder so much less. Because we don't want to go out anymore. It seems like everything just comes to us, or at least we can stay stationary in one place. <laughs> it comes to us, because if you wonder the direction we look at over phone, if you wonder what's 10 times 56, we just go to our, our phone. Of course, our, the IQ level is going down these days, because we're not wondering anymore. And we don't need to memorize our own answers. It has many advantages, but it certainly has some huge disadvantages too. I'd love to talk a little bit about kind of going through each of those expeditions you did piece by piece. Because even with that first one, was it crossing the Pacific Ocean? Am I getting that right? That was the second one. The first one was to sail back and forth the Atlantic when I was 20 years old. Together with three other guys, we rented a boat, sailed from Lisbon down to West Africa to Caribbean and back to Norway, 10 months or nine months. And we were just about sinking in the Atlantic, and it was pretty brutal or steep learning curve. And then I sailed from New York to Panama, a couple of days later down to Antarctica, around Cape Horn, with a Bermudan boat called War Baby. And then I decided to try to, as you said, be the first to walk to the North Pole and support it with this Norwegian guy called Berge Osland. And then I want to walk alone to the South Pole as the first in history. And then I want to be the first in the world to reach North Pole, South Pole, Top Everest on foot. So having said that, I think many people would have been able to do the same, but somehow they didn't try. Or a few tried on and failed, but... <laughs> yeah, didn't try again or didn't, <laughs> didn't keep at it. So your latest book, I believe, which is one I've been really enjoying over the weekend and just reading through again is Philosophy for Polar Explorers, which is a wonderful book. Again, keeps with the theme of it's a very compact book, but it's filled with a lot of really wonderful ideas and it's really wonderfully written. But one of the things you talk about in the book, you have a passage about failure and how failure is part and parcel of trying. And you have other passages about kind of allowing your goals to pursue you. And I'm curious just going back to that very first expedition you did with a few friends, it sounds pretty traumatic. You ended up taking on a bunch of water at one point. It felt like you were on the verge of sinking. And I'm curious if you could, one, talk through a little bit about all the challenges you saw in that kind of particular experience. But two, a lot of people would probably go through that, get to the end of it and think, wow, that was really difficult. Maybe I shouldn't do this or I shouldn't go do any more exploring or go on any more adventures. So if you could just talk a little bit about that expedition in itself and then talk a little bit about why that wasn't the end of exploring for you and 
why you were still so interested and curious to continue? It turned out being quite dangerous, that expedition of sailing across the Atlantic. But I learned a lesson. I learned a lesson about the importance of preparations. We were lousy prepared. And that was the reason we almost sank in the middle of the Atlantic. And this Norwegian explorer, which Amundsen, the first guy to the South Pole, he wrote something which I had taken with me in my heart until today, also as a family man and as a publisher, entrepreneur. He wrote that, I just translated into English, something like, victory awaits the one who has everything in order. People call it good luck. While failure always follows bad preparations, people call it bad luck. And so since then, since that expedition, I really started to do my homework. And I know by myself that I'm not physically stronger than everybody else, but I have been good with my preparations. So that Those two crossings of the Atlantic is a reminder that experience is the best education you can have, but it's very costly. Which is another great quote. <laughs> but it was also a great trip. Four guys sailing to the Caribbean, ready for parting, swimming all day over there, windsurfing, being a part of nature, really enjoying life. And also that it's a little bit dangerous is also important because if it isn't difficult and if it isn't dangerous, then someone else can do it. And so going from there and talking a little bit about transitioning to the next expedition you went on with your fellow Norwegian, can you talk a little bit about that trip and the preparation for that and just how that went? For the North Pole? Yes. That was a different story because then we prepared for two years. And of course, at the time, late 80s, National Geographic, which was a magazine we all read at the time, they said in an article that maybe the last great challenge in the Arctic is to walk to the North Pole unsupported. And we read it and we thought this is something we're going to do. And the three guys, we got together and we prepared for two years. And when you prepare, you need to, of course, raise sponsorships, which is the most humiliating part of it all, but you have to do it. And I think it's healthy to be humiliated sometimes. And then you need to prepare the food. You eat the same food every day. Fat, mashed potatoes, dried meat, oats, chocolate extra fat, formula milk. Of course, this food doesn't taste so good when you start on an expedition, but after the days and weeks pass by, it starts to taste like true gourmet food. Then you need to train physical-wise. So I went skiing, cross-country skiing, hiking with a heavy backpack. And when there was no snow in Oslo, I took roller skis and dragged tractor tires up the hills outside Oslo to simulate dragging a sled. And of course... When you do that, you look absolutely stupid. So when people ask me, what, what are you up to? And I said, I'm going to walk to the North Pole. And nobody believed me. So he went back <laughs> and got a bachelor party. Yeah, on roller skates dragging a tire. <laughs> and everybody believed me when I said it was a bachelor party. How heavy is the sled that you end up dragging when you go on one of those? It's about 220 kilos. It's like 260, 270 pounds. And it's like about one kilo of food and fuel every day. So it gets one kilo lighter every day. But of course, the snow 
in the Arctic and also in the Antarctic is quite tough because it's so there's so much friction. It's really heavy to drag. And that's why most people fail because to walk to North Pole is it goes down to minus fifty-four degrees. And the Arctic is an ocean circumnavigated by continents as an opposite to Antarctica, which is a continent circumnavigated by oceans. So to walk to the North Pole, you actually have to walk on drifting ice. And sometimes the ice breaks apart. And it can be very windy. As I said, it's super cold. And we were even attacked by a polar bear. So it is dangerous. But I wouldn't say it's super dangerous, but it's dangerous. But I also, as I said, it has to be dangerous. It has to be difficult. It has to be super cold. You've got to have all those frostbites. You need to almost cry when you're going to have a pee or a shit because it's so cold. If it had been for it, I wouldn't have done it because that's kind of the meaning. That's what gives an expedition meaning is that you are challenging yourself, that you are suffering and not giving up. And it's what you learn in that suffering or what you learn from overcoming that suffering, I'm guessing. I think it's important to learn. You learn it in life that life is hard. Life is rough. As Johnny Cash said, if man got to make it, it got to be tough. No, but it, for me, I heavily dyslexia. So I didn't learn how to read or write. And I couldn't even pronounce my own name before I was 10 years old. And of course, that kind of experiences are very sad, very frustrating. But it also taught me not to trust authorities because there was nothing wrong with my teachers, but what they told me didn't work for me. And it's also taught me that I had to find my own way to my goal, to find a solution, because what worked for the other in my class didn't work out for me. And thirdly, it also taught me like how brutal life can be and how it is to feel insecure, how it is to be bullied, how it is to be a loser. So I won't romanticize about being dyslectic or having a hardship early in life. But for me, it has certainly also been a very important experience in a positive way. I wasn't aware of that, that you had dyslexia and that you weren't able to pronounce your name by the age of 10. And that obviously is somewhat insane, knowing now that you're professionally a publisher and you've written multiple best-selling books, which I'm sure if you were to rewind back to that point in your time, I'm sure you probably never thought that that was going to be a possibility. Were you always interested in writing and reading and publishing? Or can you talk a little bit about that fascination? As soon as I learned how to read, when I was around 10, I started to read a lot because that's a great way to learn, of course, and to be entertained, but also to kind of live your life through other people's lives and to dream, to come up with visions, to come up with new challenges, ideas. So I loved reading as soon as I learned how to do it. And before then, my parents was reading a little bit for me in the evenings. So I always loved a great story. But of course, I never believed I was going to write bestsellers, as I said, or start my own publishing company. And nobody else believed it either. I'm sure if I know my, my teachers at that time. But that's the beauty of life, that quite often you do things despite of and not because of. As a reaction to almost the things you've yeah, experienced or the things you've done. The people in my class, uh, the older pupils, very nice people. But of course, if you are super good looking, bright enough to get good results at school, 
the teacher is treating you nicer than he or she does to the other pupils. Um, everybody falls in love with you and you have friends all the time. Then you don't have anything more to fight for when you get 15 and 20 years old. So it's kind of, to say it in a cliche-like way, we end up getting a wife that reminds you about your mother and get the house in the same flat in the same neighborhood as you grew up. And it's nothing wrong with it, but the alternative is pretty good too. Thinking back, you talk about once you were able to read, just being absorbed by it. When you think back to your childhood, were there books that you think of still as being very formative? And I'm curious, part of that is, were you reading about explorers or were you reading like endurance or <laughs> any books like that? Or was it more just getting lost and just fascinating stories? I remember the first book I read was a biography on this German guy called Albert Schweitzer, who later won the Nobel Prize, Peace Prize, because of his humanitarian work, especially in Africa. And he was also kind of a philosopher about importance of life, kind of respect your own life, but also respect every life on earth, like small plants, insects, and of course, most important, humans. So being 10 years old, reading the book, this was a book with big letters, easy read, but I still remember that book as very inspiring. I actually still have the book. And the second book was Papillon. Do you remember Papillon? No. The French book? This guy was a super famous book. This guy, French guy, convicted for murder, maybe innocently, sent to this little island, Devil's Island, outside South America. It's his story about him escaping. I just, I read that book twice in a row. I just loved it. And of course, I identified with him. I was dreaming about him. I lived my life through his story for several months. Yeah, I think there was a movie about that recently, I think just a couple of years ago. Some years ago, yeah. A great movie. I think Steve McQueen played the. I think it was Steve McQueen. I can't remember. Great movie. So you touched on there, which is fascinating, because just knowing a little bit about you, that first book sounds extremely advanced. It definitely wasn't my first <laughs> book, was reading about a humanitarian and someone who ends up reading. You were seven years old. I was 10 years old. Sure. You had built up to that point for quite a bit longer. But that was maybe a little bit of an introduction to philosophy for you. You end up doing, going on all of these expeditions, then you go and actually study philosophy. And then most of the books that you've published, I think, are very philosophical. I don't know if you'd call them philosophy books. They definitely talk about kind of a very unique, very thoughtful perspective on life, perspective on topics like silence. But when were you first fascinated with philosophy and what led you to ultimately wanting to study that? I think I've been fascinated by philosophy for my whole life, but I didn't hear about philosophy until I was way into my teenagers. I like philosophy in the sense of thinking about important matters, thinking about ideas, thinking about what's right, what's wrong. I think that's something I've been doing for my, almost my whole life. But to sit down and read proper philosophy, maybe my late teenagers, then I start to see that I could kind of understand myself much better by reading philosophy, understand the world, and understand what people are doing as they're doing, and also being better at kind of predicting what's going to happen next. And then also taking pleasures reading it as such, not as a means to end something else, but just like a great pleasure. So then I kind of kept on reading philosophy and I became close friend to a philosopher. And to me, it helped me to develop my relationship to nature, 
taught me about listening to Mother Earth. Like it's four and a half billion years old. So it's kind of naive today that we hardly listen to Mother Earth anymore. And it also made me, I think, a better publisher and also believe and I hope it also made me into a better human being. And are there philosophers that you really admire whose works you really enjoy? Many. This Baruch Spinoza, mid-17th century uh, Dutch philosopher. I read his main work, The Ethics, twice, and I kind of understood less the second time than the first time. So, <laughs> so it's complicated, but as I said, I believe in making life more difficult than it has to be. So I don't mind reading books I really don't understand properly. I think it's healthy to try to listen to music and reading books that you don't really understand. And it feels like clearly part of philosophy, or at least it seems like part of the philosopher's tradition is kind of going far away, really embracing that silence or embracing a different perspective in order to help shape the way that you think about it and be able to see things objectively. It seems to me that your interest in exploring, your interest in doing things like 50 Days and Nights Alone, one, I imagine that really helps shape and give you a unique perspective, but it also gives you a ton of time to just not even actively think about this stuff, but process it and have some of this bubble up. How closely was your interest in exploring with your interest in philosophy? How linked? I don't separate. Yeah, same. For me, it's a lifestyle. As a publisher, explorer, art collector, keen reader... It's all the same to me. It's not like I think, no, I finished working, so now I'm going to do something else. It's all a part of the one I am. And I'm sure it's nice to kind of feel that you work from nine up in the morning until five in the afternoon, and then you can go home and do something else. That's not my life. And I think, you know, entrepreneurs, I think it's really hard to separate private life from professional life. And I enjoy it. I enjoy that. It, it's all a lifestyle. It's all integrated. I want to talk a little bit about your publishing work. Clearly, that's linked. I'm sure that interest is linked with your interest and passion with writing. But what led you to become a publisher? And I guess what excites you about that work today? First of all, it's great in the sense that you need to think about intellectual matters and commercial challenges all day. If you're a publisher, only think about the money, you're going to go bankrupt. And if you're a publisher, only think about emotional, sensitive, kind of intellectual matters, you will also go bankrupt. So you need the combination, and I'm interested in both. And in 95, I lived in Cambridge in England, and my girlfriend got pregnant. And I thought I should go home to Norway. I should change my life a little bit, do less expeditions. I should be able to earn some money so I can buy a home and try to be a good father. And then I thought, what should I do? And I looked at different options and I decided on book publishing. One reason was because it was an old-fashioned, stuffy, very conservative business, which was good for me. Secondly, because I thought, it's interesting. I can probably have a great time being a publisher. I can publish, I didn't think about it at the time, but soon I also understood I can start to publish important books, important books that can change people's lives to a certain degree. So I think as of jobs, I think this best job I could have. And then I published three books, it went well, and then I published 13 books and it still went well. Today we are the biggest nonfiction publisher in Norway. And it's still fun. Of course sometimes it's not so fun if we got no but in general I think it's exciting and I think 
for every entrepreneur, of course, it's nice to earn money and blah, blah, blah. But I think the most important for most entrepreneurs are like, you really feel that you're succeeding with what you're doing. You're creating good stuff. As also as a publisher, of course, we can't change the whole world, but everybody can change the world. You can search a little bit, little part of the world. And as a publisher, I feel that I'm changing the world a little bit for the better. You talked about there that it was an old stuffy kind of business or world, which was good for you. I'm guessing that's good for you in the sense that you wanted to go in and do something very different. Is that true? Yeah. In Norwegian, we have this saying that if people in the business you're going to venture into has a lot of hair in the nose, you have a huge opportunity to succeed. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I translated it properly, but something like this. No, that's a great. I mean, I appreciated that translation. That's great. <laughs> yes, exactly. Because I think in general, after traveling to more than 100 countries, talk to thousands of people, my impression is that most people underestimate themselves and their own possibilities in life. But of course, some people are overestimating themselves. And certainly <laughs> Norwegian publishers at the time, they were thought too good about themselves. So I saw a window of opportunity, worked hard and published some great books from day one. And of course, the world is unfair, but it's not only unfair. So if you work hard, publish some good books, you have an okay chance to succeed. And what are some of the books you're most proud of that you published? From the States, we published like Colson White, Railroad Underground, several kind of famous books. And they're selling really well also in Norwegian. But then again, we had many books that we are developing the ideas of ourselves. And then we published them in Norwegian. And then they are sold to many translations throughout the whole world. And that's something I'm really, really proud of. In my company, you're not allowed to say it was my idea. I had the idea first. I think that's very bad. I think it's a collective thing. It's a group thing that we develop ideas together. And it's like sitting around a fireplace late in the evening just before you're going to go to sleep in a tent or just under open skies. And everybody's sitting around the same fire and they develop ideas and try to make great books. Um, we publish around 100 new titles every year. Um, it's fantastic. Like just a few years ago, we had this book on Norwegian wood culture, how to stop wood, how to stack wood. Um, we are 5 million people in this country, and we sold 170,000 copies. Um, we didn't expect it to export, but then it became a bestseller in Germany and England and many other countries. And it also became a kind of important book for many people because the reason people shop wood, I think one of the reasons is because you would like to get away from your family for an hour. But then also it's nice to do it because it's physical. You don't think about anything else. You don't have any noise in your head. And eventually the wood you shop can heat up the house you live in, maybe with your family. And that also gives you a great experience. So I think people really need to get away. And also I think that's one reason we sell so many books on knitting because people like to knit because then you're not disturbed. So you get some silence in your life. And that's also, I think, why we also sell books brewing beer because that's another way to get away and doing something sensible, something meaningful, but not being disturbed by your telephone or by anyone else. It sounds really similar to the idea of like a flow state or doing an activity to kind of, I don't know, just 
you lose track of all sense of time. To your point, you stop thinking about the future, you stop thinking about the past, and you're just in the moment. You're suddenly present in your own life. As I also write about in my books, I think a challenge for many of us is that we're doing the same things every day. And I'm not against routines. I think routines are very important to life. But eventually, if everything turns into routine, as I said earlier on, if you spend three or four hours every day looking into a screen to explore the world and explore yourself, then you will soon have the impression that life is very short. And that impression will just grow on you as the years pass by. And when you are as old as me, 57 years old, you start to go to 60th, 70th, 80th birthday parties. And every party, someone is talking about life being short. And I didn't really understand that all these days, weeks, and years, that was life. And that's a little bit sad because you have this huge opportunity to have a rich life. And then you're kind of wasting it by never breaking free. I'm not saying that like you should walk to the South Pole like I did, but somehow you need to find your own South Poles. And as I said early on, I think most people are underestimating themselves in terms of possibilities. And when you say people find their own South Poles, is that taking on challenges that's going to bring out the best in them? That's really going to, I don't know, kind of make them either succeed or fail? Or how do you think about that? I don't like to fail, but, but fail is a kind of a part of everything. So I think more like yeah, bringing out the best, but also like doing things a little bit differently, like well, not doing exactly the same. You go to bed in the evening, you lay down on the same place in your bed, and throughout the whole day, next day, you're doing kind of exactly the same. You have to break free. And practical-wise, as you have seen in my books, I'm not trying to give any people advices. I just tell them about what I find important, and then you need to find your own ways. But just practical-wise, if you take away some apps from your phone, like just take away Facebook from your phone and just leave it on your PC at home or at work so you can congratulate people their birthdays, just that is like a small change, not a great change, but an important change. So I think you just need some variety in life. I want to ask one more thing about your publishing, which is you mentioned that you focus just on nonfiction, which is really interesting. Can you talk a little bit about that? We also have some fiction like uh, Colson Whitehead and a few others. And Brett Snellis. But it's because in Norwegian publishing, but I also think in, in US most places, fiction is the most prestigious. That's kind of the high end in publishing in general. That's kind of considered the coolest, high status. So I think that's a very good reason for publishing nonfiction because I didn't start in publishing to get a medal. I started, as I said, to have a job, to do a good job, publishing great books, uh, have a hopefully a very good business. So I just believe that you don't need to go against all trends all the time, but I think sometimes you need to again, find your own path. And when people think it gives them the most prestige to do something, you should do something else. And on a personal level, I think quite often reality is so much more exciting than people manage to come up with while they write fiction. I mean, reality is just insane, crazy, super entertaining, challenging, great reads. So... That's also another reason I like nonfiction books and to build publishing. 
And you talked a little bit about how within the company, no one can say that they had an idea first and how you're focused as much on coming up with your own ideas and working as a group. Can you share a little bit about what that process looks like? Even for a book, I guess, like the book you mentioned about chopping and stacking wood, does coming up with ideas mean like first finding an interesting topic, then trying to find the right person to write on it? And are you really just spinning up these books and ideas from scratch or what does that look like? Could be almost from scratch, or maybe I read or heard something. But then this particular idea, someone said, why not trying to do something on the culture about all these guys, it's mostly guys, who shopping wood in the evenings, Sundays, Saturdays, they shop wood. This phenomena, of course, Norway is very, lots of forests. What is it all about? Why do they do it? Why do they look so happy and content while they're doing it? This idea developed over a couple of years. Talked to some people about writing it. They didn't really get it. And then eventually, after two or three years, we found a guy who wanted to write it. And he again spent almost two years to write it. And he did a great job. And it turned into a super bestseller. So kind of the idea as such was not a great idea, but it ended up being a great idea because everything came together in a very, very good way. And that project sounds like it was probably, what, four or five years in the making? Yeah. Is it difficult? It seems very similar, I guess, to just putting one foot in front of the other. <laughs> exactly. Like on your expeditions. So it just seems like you're constantly kind of overcoming those hurdles. Is that demotivating at all? And is that demotivating for people on your team? Or how do you guys think about that internally? The good thing is that most people give up. They don't want to put like one leg in front of the other enough time. So they give up. So I think. For me, it just I have a real high threshold for giving up on anything. I think sometimes you have to give up. You have to take the loss. And maybe it's not even a loss. Maybe it's a kind of, a, as I said, it's a great education. You learn a lot and you move on. And other times a defeat is just awful and has hardly anything good with it. But in general, I know by myself that most people will give up. They don't have the stamina. or it just all the things are too tempting. It's just too tempting to explore the world while looking into a screen on your device rather than be out in nature walking. Or you don't want to get up early in the morning because you need to work. You don't want to cold sweat during the night because you're worried about projects going really bad. So, as I said, I believe in making life more difficult than it has to be. And many people disagree. You clearly have a very high threshold, as you mentioned there, for just pain and for what it would take for you to give up. And certainly it sounds like overall that's been a really good force. But I imagine that could lead you to pursue things that probably don't make sense or where you do end up at some point having to say, you know what, I think now we need to stop. So I'm curious, it feels to me like a really smart default to just always put one foot in front of the other. But do you have a criteria in your mind for when you, or a way of thinking about when you just have to say no and decide that it's a failure or decide that you should stop pursuing it? I think it's very important to be aware of your own limitations and remember that you have your limitations and also that there are so many other smart people out there. So you need to narrow in your scope. Like I have been asked many times if I want to do all the kinds of businesses than book publishing, but I don't. I also like book publishing because it's not trendy. When I started book publishing, everybody wanted to go into internet stuff in the mid-90s. And I thought all the clever people want to do internet startups. I should do something else. When I was 
I think I write about it in philosophy for polar explorers when I was quite young, around my twenties. I started speculate on stocks because I thought I can earn a lot of money without doing any huge effort. And for a short while, I earned good money, and then I lost it all and more. That also taught me a lesson that just don't think you're that clever, smart, better than other people. It's so much more about hard work, and also to be what's the word in English vulnerable, of course, but also to be totally aware that you can always lose. Something can go wrong at any moment. One of the oldest advices in the world, the history of the world, is that please remember that you're going to die. Of course, that's dramatic, but it's really important to keep in the back of your head that you're going to die. I don't think it's helpful to think about your own death too much because then it's hard to be a free human being is to think about your own death all the time. But to be aware that you have this opportunity, as I said, like, and you can be hit by the bus tomorrow morning. You rather try to do a good job today. That idea really resonates with me of being totally okay with people that are off pursuing the hot, really interesting thing and following instead just what makes a lot of sense to you. But it's also something that feels like it's going out of style or that it's becoming less and less popular over time. So I'm curious, do you have any thoughts about how you've tried to help your kids understand that or how any parent can try to help their kids just understand that it's totally okay to do your own thing and it's totally okay to head off in a different direction? I think that's a difficult one. If I knew how to raise daughters in a perfect way, <laughs> I would probably win all Nobel Prizes available. I think it's like looking at my daughters, I think the unhappiest group of human beings on earth are 15-year-old girls. And I think as a father, it is very challenging. But fortunately, I have a very good relationship to my daughters today. They are. 18, 21, and 24. I'm sure they're unhappy about things I have done, but I try to take them into nature and teach them the importance of listening to Mother Earth, to feel the wind, the heat, the cold, listening to the birds, looking at the butterflies, walk, get tired, get cold, have a little bit of what I said earlier on, like being a part of nature. And I think that at least also many other things, but I think that's a super important lesson because today we live in, we're kind of the first generation that actually don't have to walk. Of course, it was not human beings, it was not homo sapiens who invented the possibility to walk on two legs. It was the possibility to walk on two legs that invented homo sapiens. So I've always been a walking species. Exploration has always been about walking, moving, feeling, experiencing. Today, exploration is very much about sitting in a chair, looking into a screen. And that's a huge misunderstanding because, of course, nature tells us quite a bit about where we come from and also quite a bit about what's going to happen next. So I think that's... One of the reasons I wrote these books is also because I want my daughters to read them. But also, in addition to that, we try to kind of keep up the curiosity, keep up the wonder. And also, I think if you're born in Norway, I also think it's very important to be very aware that you are very privileged and be grateful for what's good in your life. 
And that's something I think find very frustrating when people are not, you should be grateful for what's good in life. And you should try to be generous towards other people. And I think gratefulness and generosity are kind of two of the greatest things in life. Yeah, they go a long way. So you brought up there walking, and you wrote an entire book on walking. You've got a book called Walking One Step at a Time, which is one of your books that I haven't read, although I really want to. Can you share a little bit about what led you to write that book and maybe the biggest lesson that someone will take away reading it? I think you do everything you do, you do for more than one reason. But the main reason I wrote that book was because my kids, when they were small, they kept on asking me, why do we have to walk when it's faster to drive? And that's a very good question. I found it really hard to explain it to my kids. Because, you know, why, why, why walk? Why move yeah, slower? Why go slower? Exactly. So I, I really struggled to explain it to my kids. But when they were young, at least they listened to what I told them. So if I told them to walk, they walked. But then that was one reason I eventually sat down to write a long answer. Well, not that long though, but like 20,000 words answer to that question. It seems like the big idea there, or the one that seems much bigger than walking that I'd love to talk about really quickly is just that whole notion of today, I do feel like in all aspects of life, people always want to choose the fastest option, the way to bypass the most things and get there. Because I think in a lot of our minds, it's like, well, I'm trying to get to from point A to point B. All that matters is getting to point B. So why not get there as fast as possible? And clearly there's a bunch of things that are lost in that. So I guess, what would you say to somebody or how would you answer that question of why someone should take the slower approach when they have the chance of going somewhere faster? (laughs) I think it's another of the huge misunderstandings in today's society is this idea that we're better off if we have a high speed. Of course, the government, school system, every commercial business almost, they all tell you you have to speed up because you're going to build cross-national product and you're going to be a great consumer. That's why you need to have a speed. But my experience is, kind of the opposite. So of course, sometimes you need to have a good speed, but by slowing down, like for instance, walking instead of driving all the time, you experience so much more. And of course, when you walk, you can become more creative. The reason why people like from Socrates in Athens 2,400 years ago or Steve Jobs in California until recently, the reason they all kept on walking was because, of course, because it was good for the creativity. They were thinking, they were wondering, and they were coming up with bright ideas. And also walking is good for your intelligence, I think. And it's also good for your memory because somehow if you walk slowly, I think your memory works so much better. And I also think it's good for your emotional life that if you sit in a chair, so little things are happening in your mind. While if you walk, it's even in other language. If you move, you're being moved. You emotion, emotion. So that's just some of the examples why walking is important. But also, I'll try to say this in English. It's also about time in the sense that, let's say you're going 10 miles down the street and you drive that distance and it takes you a few minutes and then nothing is happening while you drive that. You don't see anything, you don't hear anything, you're not thinking about anything. It's kind of nothing to write home about. 
And then if you walk the same distance, you probably use maybe three hours. And you feel the air, you're smelling what's going on, you are seeing, watching into the faces of people. If it's on nature, you see the grass, you see the trees, you're seeing your fellow citizens. If you're in a city, which is very important, if you're going to have respect for the people, you need to see them. You have all these small experiences, nothing great probably, but all these small experiences. Then time is stretching out, it's opening up. And the world is opening up because instead of just passing everything in a high speed, you see it. You interact with it. You get experiences. So then also the world is stretching out, is opening up. That again makes your life so much richer. So I don't think you should walk all the time. I have a car, but we should walk more. We should accept like sometimes just slow down. As I said, being the center of our own lives, not live our life on the conditions of everybody else. Because walking is very much about freedom. And I think that speed up is about the opposite of freedom. It's unfreedom because it's other people, it's the government, as I said, the education system, businesses that decide how you're going to live your life. Not all the time, but sometimes you should break free. It's a great answer. It's a lot to think about there. So many good points. One more thing. Remember, every great revolution in the world, history of the world, has started by people walking the streets. Which is very timely. <laughs> exactly. There's <laughs> a lot of that going on in 2020. I want to ask one more question and then we can go into some of the closing questions. But one thing that you touched on earlier is just how much we should be learning from Mother Nature and how much Mother Nature has to teach us. And yet we're the most disconnected from that, which is something I totally agree with. Just we moved from San Francisco, which was in the middle of the kind of tech scene to Colorado. We live up in the mountains. We live in the middle of the forest, which is a national forest here. And so we get a lot of really harsh conditions. Life's not as easy as it is down in the city, but I think it's for sure a better life. And definitely just being out in nature, seeing our son be able to go out in the forest and just go and wander. I think that one, it just puts, well, there's so much research to say that it puts us at ease and it's where we feel most comfortable is being out in nature, being with the trees, being with all those organic shapes. So anyways, it's had a really big impact on my life and it's been fascinating to watch kind of my son learn from nature. But in all of your experiences, including super isolating experiences, like being on the South Pole for 50 days, what are the big lessons you've taken away from Mother Nature? What do you think that it has to teach us all? Which is a big question. <laughs> <laughs> I guess a big alter. One way, when you're in nature, you kind of become aware of your own smallness in the sense that whatever you do, nature has so much more resources, it's so much bigger, it's going to last for so much longer. But on the other hand, you also get this feeling of greatness that you are a part of everything. You are part of the dirt, the dust, the trees, the air, the wind, the sun. You're part of it all, of the whole universe. So that also kind of put you in place somehow. And although you're just this minor, minor, minor character, you still are a very, very important being. So I think you now that combination about feeling little and feeling great is one very important lesson from nature. Yeah, that's a great lesson. So just moving on to some closing questions, one of the ones I wanted to ask you was, we've talked a little bit about all the different exploring and expeditions that you've done, and I highly encourage people to read your books where you go into a lot more depth than to things like running into that polar bear and having to kill his polar bear when you were in the North Pole. That's just one small element of one of those stories. We could talk for hours about those stories, but 
I'm curious, when you think back on those, is there one of those expeditions that you just hold on to the most dearly or that still resonates with you the most strongly of the things that you've done? I think to walk alone to the South Pole, that was the greatest for me because I was alone. I consider myself to be a very social human being, but I was alone and had to live my own ideas and thoughts for I didn't know for how long. And then being so close to the ice and the snow and the wind and the sun, that was the most important in my life because it taught me this lesson on silence. It taught me a lesson, as I said, about hardship. Also a lesson about how to succeed, how to survive. So for me, that expedition to the South Pole was more an expedition into myself. So one of the questions I want to ask as well, too, is for any book recommendations you might share with the audience. For people that are listening, clearly not seeing this, but Erling, at the beginning of the interview, is in his library, which is stacked literally floor to ceiling with books. You've clearly read plenty of books. I'm curious, do you have recommendations you would give people for someone? I think the most interesting would be any amazing stories of explorers that you really enjoy or books that they've written or books about them. And then two, are there books that you refer to people, that you recommend to people, that you give out to people that you think are really meaningful? The book I gave away a few copies just recently was Pete Matheson's The Snob Leopard. Have you heard about it? No, I haven't heard about that book. Pete Matheson, he was an editor of Paris Review. And he did his hike in the Himalayas. His wife had died. His son, he left with some other people. And then he went to Himalayas to search for a snob leopard. It's a beautiful, thoughtful book. I was just reading Roland Huntford yesterday about his books on the famous polar explorers. He's a great writer. You don't need to agree with everything, but he's really, really a great writer. And then again, I think I just read this Girl, Woman, Other. It's won the Booker Prize or something like this last year. I think that was a great, like, it's a novel. It's just about all main characters are black women, which is original. And then I just also read George Saunders, The 10th of September, short stories. I actually read yesterday, George Saunders said that with short stories, it's like cracking jokes. It has to be good all the way. I think that's a good point because quite often with novels, I think it's you read two thirds and then when it, the author is going to wrap it all up, it kind of gets a little bit boring. And I quite often stop reading the book because I kind of feel I had it. But with short stories, great short stories, you have to read the whole way. But having said that, finally, a book that really made a huge impression was Tolstoy's War and Peace, this 1,300-page book. I avoided reading it because it's so long. A year and a half ago, I decided to read it with two friends. And I mean, it's tough going, but when I came to like page 1150, it was so good. I stopped reading. I took a few months break because I just want to live with the story for a few more months and let it develop in my head and live with the characters. I didn't want to let them go. And then I read the final part. That's incredible. Do you have any other favorite philosophy books or books from philosophers that you really enjoy or that you'd recommend? I just like a philosophical novel. I was just thinking I'm going to reread is Frankenstein, the classic from 1815, 1820. I think that book really relates to the time we're living in. 
not only with AI, but also with AI, but also many other things like Frankenstein, of course, was a doctor. He invented this being that eventually turned into a monster. But when you just read about it like this, it's not so fascinating. But of course, the monster has emotions. The monster falls in love. The monster does beautiful things. It does awful things. But somehow, you also identify with the monster and the Frankenstein's monster. So I was just thinking I should read it again. And, you know, it's also a very, very philosophical book. In terms of philosophy, I could just recommend two Norwegian philosophers. Lars Svensen, S-V-E-N-D-S-E-N, who wrote this philosophy of boredom, philosophy of work, philosophy on different subjects. And now his next book was just published as Philosophy of Lies. Very interesting book. And then Arne Ness, Ness, N-A-E-S-S, the father of deep ecology. I think he's almost forgotten today, but I think he also has great things to say about respecting life, all kinds of life. Is that book very nature-centric or is it just life-centric? It's very nature-centric, yeah. This is Norway. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's going to be. Huge country and few people. So yeah, quite nature-centric. One of the other things that we ask everybody on the show is we try to interview people that have just achieved something that's remarkable, that's achieved something worth reading about, something thinking about, someone worth hearing from. And uh, part of that is just to try to understand what they've learned and the things that they apply in their life today. And we've talked a lot about that in the show so far, but one of the questions I was super curious to ask you is, do you have any rituals, any things that you do every single day that help you put these things that you've learned into practice? So that could be something like taking time to reflect during the day, making sure that you're going out and walking during the day. Do you have, for anyone listening that is just fascinated by your kind of ideas, can you share a little bit about what you do each day to live those? As I said earlier on, I believe in routines because there's so many decisions to do during one day and so many things to think about. So if you have these routines, you have so much more surplus to venture into that kind of matters. So I try to get up around the same time every morning. I eat oat porridge almost every morning, like four or five mornings a week. And I have blueberries that my brother, who has a lot of spare time, pick in the summer and then I freeze it in a Porsche every day and then I usually try to walk to my office now with Corona we have home office but usually I try to walk either to my office or back from my office or both how far is that uh, it's like 35 minutes it's a great walk I have some meetings but I try to avoid too many meetings then I walk home I try to cook every day if I eat in restaurants or travel but if I'm home even if I'm by myself I try to cook like live Simple, good food every day. I think that's very important. Some of the greatest pleasures in life is to eat good food with great people, but it's pretty good to do it by yourself too. And then I try to go to bed more or less the same time every evening. And in the evenings, I read manuscripts, I read papers, and I read literature. And then when this winter is approaching now, I go cross-country skiing uh, quite often late in the evenings, maybe just for an hour, an hour and a half. I live close to the forest. And in the weekends, I go on long trips. Kind of routine which a little bit like a polar explorer. <laughs> yeah, the same porridge. Is it the same porridge that you eat when you're out on? I have proper milk. No, I don't have formula milk. That's probably a good 
change <laughs> when you're at home. I'm curious, one question that we don't typically ask this, but I want to ask you is, what does your writing process look like? It's such a huge part of your life, such a huge part of your work is writing. As we talked about, some of these you're writing for 18, 24 months, I'm sure longer than that. So can you talk a little bit about what your writing process looks like for you or just kind of how that, what that routine, how that routine shows up in your life? That changes because it very much depends on how much I have to do with my family, with my daughters, and also with work. But what I try to do, I try to do my research over a long time. I read, I think, I write down, I try to talk to people, discuss matters, and then again write it down and then eventually start to write it in an order which can turn into a book. And then the kind of big letters, small letters, under the big letters kind of to kind of get the dramaturgy of the book kind of pitched for myself. I usually I do it by hand because I think about the shortness between your mind and the paper. And then I do more research. And then eventually when I'm going to sit down to write, the best for me is to go away, go somewhere. I don't know anyone or maybe it's no one there. Uh, not being connected. Maybe you check emails maybe once in the morning or in the morning and the evenings. And then total focus on writing, not doing anything else. And then sometimes you're not able to write. You just have a kind of a block. So you just sit there. And then I just sit and wait. I'm not doing anything else. Maybe I do a little walk just to kind of get back. And then after five minutes or maybe one hour, I'm able to write again. And this can last for two days, three days, four days. And then eventually I'm dead tired. And then I'm going home. But then I'm doing... It's so like an expedition. When I'm exact, as I wake up at night, if I have something to write, I just get up, I sit and write for 20 minutes or longer and go back to bed again. So you kind of, you get into a trance. It's like you're hypnotized. And that's how I managed to write a lot within short time, both because I'm focused, but also because I've done my homework. That's fascinating. This has been an amazing discussion. I was looking forward to this for so long. So I just have to ask you one more question and then we can wrap up. And that's, we ask every guest just if they can share a person or experience that had a really profound impact on them and just share a little bit about that with the audience. For sure, my mother and father, as you know, every son has a problematic relationship to his father. So had I. I think that today we have a very good relationship, but I think it was important, but one person, this Arne Nest, the philosopher I mentioned, who was like 50, 60 years older than me, he taught me, for instance, about the importance of keeping your pleasures simple. That has been very important to me. Of course, I also learned it on expeditions. And I know that people have said it for thousands of years. And I think any advice that had lasted for more than 1,000 years, you could take really seriously. But having Arne saying it to me, and we went on trips together, spent time in the mountains together, living really simple lives, and see how he lived his own philosophy, I'm very, very grateful for that. Life-changing. It's amazing. Well, thank you so much. This has been an amazing conversation, Erling. Thank you. Tusen tak, as you say in Norwegian. Thank you for inviting me. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Bye-bye. Until next time, thank you so much for tuning in. For show notes, including links to everything mentioned in this episode, visit danielscrivener.com. 
There you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter, where each week I send out a single email with all of the best quotes, themes, and ideas from the latest episode. To sign up for that, visit danielscrivener.com slash email. Just one more thing before you take off. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a quick review in iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Great reviews help us land great guests. So if you've enjoyed this episode, take 30 seconds to leave a short review. We would so appreciate it. Thank you so much.